As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host the trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. The culture is the culture. It's 4-6A to to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, The plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to 4-6 to with A&B, your Ohio State podcast on The Athletic. Bill Landis, as always, joined by my main man, Ari Wasserman, on the other side of the country. Ari, how are you doing on this fine June morning? You know, things could be worse. Uh, How are you doing, Bill? I'm good. I'm good. world's a little weird right now. A little, little uh, I don't know. I don't know what it's like in uh, in, in Phoenix, um, but people here in, in Columbus have been, you know, have been out in the streets and making their uh, voices heard the last couple of days. So, here a lot of police helicopters, a lot of activity. I live pretty close to downtown, um, so it's been uh, it's been an interesting couple of days. It's been, I think, an inspiring couple of days in a lot of ways. It's been a saddening couple of days, um, but you know, me personally, I'm good. Yeah, I, uh, I've been watching from afar, and a lot of that stuff that's happening in, in downtown Columbus was like a quarter of a mile away from my apartment when I lived there. So um, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, you know, and look, we're uh, we're going to do our, our, our state of the program episode here, and uh, the story is up on the athletic, and we're we're going to talk, you know, football for the the large majority of this podcast, and and I know there might be some fatigue out there about you know what we just talked about there on the on the open, and and we won't belabor the point, but but I think it's important to bring up as you are listening to an Ohio State podcast, and we are Ohio State football writers. Um, there are players on the team that you love that are hurting right now, and I think have a lot of reason to do so, and are trying to make their voices heard and they put out what I thought was a really compelling video on Monday night um, expressing some of those opinions. It was put together by the Ohio State staff. Ryan Day himself was in the video in what I thought was a pretty strong um, show of support by uh, a, a white head coach for, for many of his African-American athletes and there were white players in the video as well. And uh, I think the only thing I'll say on that is is that we should listen to them. Um, however you feel about it, I guess it doesn't seem like it's all that you know, controversial to me. I think we should be supporting these guys and listening to them and, and helping them and uplifting them any way we can. The bare minimum is listening. And and I think if you go and watch that video or look at their Twitter accounts and, and see why they're hurting, um, that can do a lot for, for, for a lot of people who I think don't experience the same things that the many of the players you watch on Saturdays experience sort of in their everyday life. So um, that's all I, I really want to say on it. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to it. And then we can uh, move on here and talk about the, the state of the program story. Bill, I thought that was really well put. The minimum you can do is just hear them. And, you know, that's what I think that everybody who's listening to this and anybody who supports that football team should do. 
state of the program. We do it every year. Annual uh, feature series on the athletic. The Ohio State story went up on Tuesday morning. There have been uh, quite a few. I want to say there's been at least 20 or so um, other state of the program stories on teams around the country. You can go to the athletic. Um, get subscribed to theathletic.com slash four dash six. You can read the Ohio State story. You can read about other programs. And this is going to run all summer. And Ohio State's went up on Tuesday. And the, the point of it is not only to look at 2020 and and see what the season might be. It's not just a season preview. I think when we talk about it sort of in, in our discussions with editors, we, we talk about it sort of as like a, an annual checkup or an annual examination of where the program is, not only in the immediate, but where it's going in the future. So we're going to sort of break this up into two parts and talk about it that way. But we'll start with, with the present and the here and now. And, and it's admittedly a, a little cloudy because we don't quite know what 2020 is going to look like in terms of schedules. And things like that. I think we're pretty confident that there'll be there will be a season. So we're going to approach this as if it's going to look like what we thought it was going to look like, you know, three months ago, the 2020 season schedule, how that's all going to play out, that kind of stuff. And and with the caveat that that, that certainly could change. But Ari, that the way I framed this was, and we've talked about this before, like expectations for Ohio State, and the idea that. It seems like college football playoff or bust is like the minimum expectation, I think, for Ohio State with where it's at right now. And the idea that it's hard to hold a program year to year to the expectation of you need to win a national title or you didn't do your job. But given what happened last year, what Ohio State has coming back, particularly a quarterback with Justin Fields, the way I frame this story for the 2020 season specifically is that it feels like there is a heightened level of championship or bust because you have a potentially transcendent potentially generational, not potentially transcendent, he's really talented, but a potentially generational quarterback in Justin Fields on your roster, and he's not going to be here after this year because he's going to go to the NFL. So do you agree with that assessment of because of where they are at the most important position going into this year, it feels like championship or bust for Ryan Day? Right, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's funny, and I just remember when we just got done doing this poll, Bill, um, the, anonym, the uh, fan poll that we put up, uh, a lot of the responses, and it was so funny to me to look and see how recent things that had happened in the world of Ohio State impacted the way people voted because everything changes um, constantly, and then points of view from fans change constantly. And I think that given the fact that Ohio State just came off of a season where not only did they dominate everybody on the regular season schedule, um, but they played Clemson head-to-head and, and probably should have won in a lot of their fans' minds, uh, that game, that now in turn means Ohio State is a playoff or bust or championship or bust team. And if you would have asked that same question on that survey, or we would be having this discussion two or three years ago, maybe in 2017 when they didn't make the playoff, then people might be telling you how awesome it is to go win the Rose Bowl. Um, and that, in my opinion, was never the case. I think that with the way that this team is built – um, from a talent standpoint, to go uh, from 2014 to 2020 without a national championship is a failure. And I know that that's a hard thing to swallow because winning a national championship is so hard. And Alabama and even Clemson, to a certain extent, has now taught us or has made us feel like it's not so hard. And national championships seem to be the litmus test of who the best programs in America are because the two best programs in America win them every year. Um, but still, five, six years, seven years now, Ohio State is built to play and win games the way that those teams are 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 doing it, and they haven't done it. So the fact that Ohio State got a, a taste of what that was like, in large part because of a dominant roster, but in major part because it has a transcendent talent at quarterback who I believe might be the first overall pick in the draft next year, um, last year, now in turn makes this team that has lost quite a bit of talent but also is reloading a lot of talent in the same you know unique position to potentially win it all. And I, I think that that's the expectation and that's the hope that Ohio State fans have to, to get back onto that level and not only win a national championship in a year, but to reassert itself as an equal um, in the eyes of Alabama and Clemson, um, especially considering the fact that after the 2014 season, it seemed like Ohio State was setting itself up to be a dynasty. And that just never happened. They're in a weird position because it's you brought up um... – the survey around earlier this week and there's another or earlier this this uh spring i guess um there was another story that ran on the athletic a couple weeks ago about the most dominant teams in the history of college football 
And our buddy Matt Brown did it, one of the editors on the college football staff. And the number one sort of prerequisite was that you had to basically win a national title. So if you didn't win a net title, you were kind of eliminated from the conversation. So 2019, Ohio State wasn't in there. But if you looked at all the other criteria, and it was like margin of victory, uh, yards per play differential, victories against uh, teams that ended up ranked at the end of the year, basically everything that comes short of winning a national title I sent Matt an email and I said, like, hey, I understand why 2019 Ohio State wasn't in here, but if I send you these numbers, can you tell me where they stack up and all these other criteria? And they were, like, top 10 in everything. If they would have won a national title, they would have been, like, I think they would have been probably, like, a top five or five to eight team on that list that Matt did of the top 25 most dominant teams since, I think it was 1950. Like, this team last year was awesome. And, like, I'm not telling people anything they don't already know, but in the long history of Ohio State football, it's national championships, it's great teams, teams that just came up short, teams that won the whole thing. Like There is an argument to be made on <clears throat> paper, statistically, that the one the team we just watched last year was the best team they've ever had. I know they didn't get it done, but that's like a very high bar to get to a second year in a row. And I'm wondering, Ari, like, knowing how good they were last year in the context of this program and in the context of like the history of college football, how confident you are that they can get back to looking something like that again in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I I think that when you and I were in the hotel room at the beautiful Camelback Inn in in Phoenix the morning after um, Ohio State lost to Clemson, and we were recording our podcast in our beautiful suite with a cactus view, um, I think both of us were still kind of stunned that that team lost. And it's not because we didn't think Clemson was good or that Ohio State was the best team unequivocally. I think it was just because we've been covering this team for a long time, and that was the best, most pure version of what this team felt like, even dating back to our our vision and our coverage of the 2014 season that ended with the national championship. From start to finish, that team was awesome. It was never bad. It was never. It never seemed susceptible. It never seemed to have weakness. And you know, to me, it's funny when I was reading Matt Brown's list. The thing that I would think about the most about Ohio State is that the maybe the five or six, seven best teams in Ohio State history were teams that didn't win the national championship, <laughs> which makes me wonder. You know, for this program, a lot of people say it's unbelievable that Ohio State's gone 100 years and has never been terrible for a long period of time. I know, it's crazy. But I also think that there's a chance that this might be the most underachieving program in, in college football history um, just because of how many great, truly great elite teams didn't win at all. Again, I understand that winning a national championship is hard, and I know that other programs have great teams that didn't win it all, too. But, man, that team was good. And, like, when you start talking about can Ohio State get back to where they were last year, my gut instinct is to say no because it's only happened once in the decade that I've been covering the team and maybe once or twice in the entire life, my entire lifetime. I mean, even the team that won the national championship in 02 and the team that won the championship in 14 don't stack up to what we watched last year. Maybe there's a certain element of greatness that comes with being able to get it done. Mm -hmm. And that's the argument that I made and I think you made when we did the best teams in Columbus history with the O2 team. The O2 team statistically looked like an average middle-of-the-road football team. But the greatness to get it done week after week in situations where they could have lost, they could have lost seven times that year. They never lost. That is a certain greatness that isn't measured in the stat book. But in terms of elite talent, elite ability, and everything that Ohio State's team had last year, one of the best defensive ends in the history of Ohio State football, one of the best quarterbacks I think we'll say when he's done in Justin Fields ever. They had a lot there. And I do think that there's a chance that Justin Fields will take a step forward, will get better. Ohio State has receivers. They got Trey Sermon. Their offensive line should be really awesome. I think that their offense can get there. I don't know if their defense can. That's a good point, and it's where I wanted to go next. Is When you, when you think – I don't think the idea of you were a – you were arguably the best version of Ohio State football that we've seen in a very long time, if not ever, last year. Like You don't have to then up the bar again. I don't think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about progression from year to year because the context of the rest of the country also matters too. Um, and it's not, We're not saying that you have to be the best possible version of Ohio State football every single year and keep upping that bar every year or else you're not going to win a national title. That's not what we're saying here. Um, but the idea of sort of matching the dominance that it had last year in some way, shape, or form, I think is what we're getting at. And and I think the question then becomes, when you think about that, what gives you pause? What what When you assess the 2020 team in that way, what makes you think, well, I don't know if they're going to quite be able to get there. And I think most people listening, 
and probably almost everyone who follows Ohio State is on the same place that you are and, and I am too, and it's whether or not the defense, uh, which went from the worst defense the program has ever seen to statistically at least one of the best the program has ever seen, like a top 10 all-time defense in the history of the program last year, and whether or not next year's group can come like really anywhere close to that because that that's statistically, even over the Urban Meyer era, if you want to include Ryan Day in that still – um, things have fluctuated a little bit, and, the, and that includes like the, the, the defense. I think more than anything else has gone a little up and down. It's it's only really been terrible one year, and that was in 2018. Um, but it's still there's been ebbs and flows with how good the defense is. Well, I think the offense has remained somewhat more consistent in terms of its overall production. Um, and there's a lot of important personnel losses, obviously, on this defense. When we talk about Chase Young, Jeff Okuda at the top of the list, um, Devon Hamilton, Robert Lander, some guys maybe aren't as obvious. But defensive line and back end um, are going to be reshaped in a pretty significant way going into 2020. And I don't know. I, I still, in the end, I feel like it's going to be good enough. I don't know if I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, like, this defense is going to be great next year. But I think it could be good enough because I think the offense is going to be great. And, like, that idea, like, can you be, in your mind, compete for a national title? Can you be great on offense, potentially great on offense, and just kind of, like – not average, but you know, somewhere between average and elite defensively and still win a national title. I think that you could make the playoff uh, without question. But, you know, who's going to be the LSU this year that comes out and just blows everybody out? And I just think that maybe that'll be Ohio State. I don't know. But at a certain point, if you have a weakness, that weakness will be exposed by a very good football team. Because winning a national championship in 2020, Ohio State is going to have to beat Michigan, win the Big Ten championship, and then beat two elite, elite teams in a row. And if your defense is marginal or maybe somewhere in between elite and good, just fine, I think that there will be a team that's good enough to light them up. And then at that point, you're rolling the dice on whether or not you can outscore an opponent. And I think that that is a really nice way of putting Ohio State's defense. I think they have a chance to be great. I mean, there's some wild cards that are in the mix here. I think that getting Sean Wade was a huge step back. Or, I mean, uh, getting Wade back was a huge step forward for this defense. But is Zach Harrison going to be good? Um, good enough to change defenses? Are the linebackers going to take a step forward? Um, how's the rest of their secondary going to, to fill out? You know, I think that if this team can somehow have an above-average defense, they're going to make the playoff. I think they're going to walk into the playoff again. I don't know if they can beat the next version of LSU if their defense doesn't come together at least 85 or 80% as good as the team last year did. The question I have about the defense, and I, somebody asked me this in a mailbag a few weeks back, and, and I addressed it. Um, it's not – I'm not concerned like about any one area because they still have recruited well, and, and that was part of the state of the program too is, is like a four-year recruiting trajectory and – while Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and J.K. Dobbins are gone from 2017, there's still about 10, I think it's 10 guys or maybe 10 to 12 guys like on the top end of that class who were still on the roster. And then the 2018 class, while a lot of them haven't played a ton, um, was arguably just as talented and they're all still here. So it's not like they don't have bodies. I'm not saying like there's another Chase Young and they're just going to you know replace him and, and have that be it. But I'm not, it doesn't make me super concerned about like, well, how do you replace this guy? How do you replace this guy? The, the idea that last year – they cut down on big plays in such a significant way. Like, one, quarterbacks didn't have time to throw the ball. Everything was quicker because of Chase Young's presence. And then the way they structured the defense was, we're going to make you get rid of the ball quickly. We're not going to give you any time to throw the ball down the field. We have really good corners. We're going to blanket your guys in, in tight coverage and not let anybody get past us. Basically, you're not going to be able to throw the ball downfield with any kind of consistency. And we're going to make you try to dink and dunk in against some really good athletes and funnel the ball to the middle, tackle you, and then when you get into the red zone, you're not going to score, which is like everyone's defensive plan. But they just executed it so well last year. A, a year after, they couldn't execute it at all, and every team they played hit big plays against them. And the thing I wonder with the 2020 defense as I look at what they have coming back is the collection of parts and their ability to like kind of do that same thing. And I guess it goes back to the individuals. Like, they're – can Zach Har can some combination of Zach Harrison, Tyreek Smith, I might even put Baron Browning in that equation, like make up for the pressure that Chase Young would put on quarterbacks and speeding up their clock? Can the combination of Sean Wade and Cam Brown and Seven Banks 
be physical and blanket receivers the way that Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett did on the outside last year. And can I th- a big one that I don't think it's talked about very much when we, when we try to examine next year is like, can Josh Proctor, if he's in the middle of the defense, like Jordan Fuller was last year, be the same kind of eraser that Jordan Fuller was? Because there were times when Ohio State was playing teams and the play would pop out. It's inevitable. It's going to happen all the time. Jordan Fuller was really good about getting those guys down and, and keeping what might be a 40, 50 yard gain or a long touchdown to, you know, a 15 to 20 yard gain. And those things add up over time. And that's when you become, you know, the national leader in yards per play allowed because you just don't let those kind of plays happen. And I look at the personnel they have coming back and wonder how much the ability to limit those big plays might be lessened. And that stuff that really comes into play when you start playing the talented playoff teams, like you're talking about when you get on the same field as Clemson and Alabama and Georgia and, even Oklahoma's offense anyway. Like that that that's the main question for me. It's not so much individual personnel. It's like can you continue to limit big plays in the way you did last year? My biggest concern is something that you said and it just might sound obvious. But when you eliminate two top 5 picks and those to- those two uh top 5 picks work together. <laughs> one's rushing the quarterback and one is blanketing the receivers. Like that is like their entire defensive game plan. <laughs> and I I just think that there is some talent on this roster obviously because uh, we cover recruiting pretty well here I think um, to know that there's some guys out there it's just a matter of whether or not Ohio State's defensive fundamental plan defensively can still be effective without those two guys yeah and they're like they're not again it's not to trivialize I would never want to trivialize the idea of losing two top was it top three picks right they want number two and number three um and Jeff Okuda and Chase Young. We've also seen Ohio State lose guys, and like they kind of figure it out. But I would never just assume that they're going to be okay when you lose guys who are that talented. Um, but I don't. I, I still. I don't sit here on June second and think to myself like they're not going to be good enough. I still. I still think they're going to be good enough. I still like, you know, whether or not Zach Harrison can can have a, like a year two uh, jump up like Nick Bosa and Chase Young had. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think they're also in a little bit different position than those two guys were when it was their year two because I, I do think like Tyreek Smith is potentially really good. And I don't know if those two guys, when they were sophomores and expected to, to step up in a major way, had someone. So I guess like Nick had Chase, Nick, sophomore Nick Young had freshman, uh, or sophomore Nick Bosa had freshman Chase Young. Um, but it's not. I don't look at the defensive line. I think like, man, if Zach Harrison's not good, they're not going to be good. I think there are other potentially interesting bodies there, um, both Tyreek and even on the inside with like Teron Vincent. And I also think that on the back end, you mentioned Sean Wade. Like he's a first round pick, and so they're not totally remaking it, even if he is stepping into a new position um, to start from a place where you have a guy who's probably going to be a first round corner is obviously a really good place to start. And I think out of Cam Brown, Seven Banks, I would throw Tyreek Johnson, Marcus Williamson into that mix. You're going to find a pretty good corner rotation. And, you know, we have not seen a ton of Josh Proctor. I think what we have seen has the results have been mixed and like makes me want to pull back on what everyone says about him being Millie Cooker. But, you know, he can also develop and he was, I think, put into some spots so he was made a little uncomfortable last year. I think things that they didn't practice probably enough. And I'm talking about like two safety looks that they got burned in a couple times against Clemson. Um, I don't, I don't like look at that entire collection of defensive players and think like this is not going to be good. Um, I think no, I, I think, the, I think the opposite. Yeah, I think like, I think you look at the players and think it's going to be good, right? No, I, I think that every single year Ohio State loses players, and the idea is how are they going to replace this person? And then guess what? They replace them. And like I think if the blanket idea is can Ohio State take all the pieces that they've recruited and put together a puzzle that's really good. Like and the answer is which one are you going to bet on? I mean, I would bet on yes, a ten out of ten times. Yeah, um, it's just a matter of putting it in context of can this team win a national championship? And that's why it sounds like I'm being a downer because that is the thing. <laughs> I mean, it's not will Ohio State be really good win the Big Ten and make the playoff? It's will Ohio State win it all? And I think that there's a huge jump between those two things. And last year proved that. Yep. I think that Ohio State should be making the playoff every single year. I don't think there's anybody in the Big Ten that's physically or talented or equipped with talent to beat that team ever. Um, and I understand it's college football, and I know that teams lose sometimes. Ohio State has lost its fair share of games that I believe they shouldn't have lost or 
um, weren't in a position to lose and then didn't make the playoff as a result of it. But I don't think Ohio State should ever be missing the playoff right now. Um, whether or not they can win both of their games in the playoff with a above-average defense and not an elite defense is something that I question. But, you know, some teams have won it all with that, without it too, but I just I just hold it up to such a high standard because I understand how hard it is to do it. What makes you feel good when you, when you think about um, Ohio State's prospects of winning a national title last year? What are what are the, what are the areas or er, area or areas you look at and say like that is elite and that is why they're going to win a national title? All right, hold me back from because like I'm what am I the king of hyperbole? You're pretty good at hyperbole, yeah. I think Ohio State's offense is going to be better than it was last year. Okay, hold me back. No, I think I, I think I agree with that. I, in terms of like. Uh, scoring they were pretty high up there yards per play they were not as high and i'm talking about in the context of ohio state's offenses um but no i I agree with you i think i think they will be and i think they should be and it's like they don't have jk dobbins and that's no small loss um but with fields a quarterback the offensive line who i could do a four-hour podcast about um and let's pivot to a (laughs) four-hour offensive line podcast (laughs) and the receivers and like the coaching like they they should be better like i don't know what it's going to look like yet in terms of schematics and stuff like that um but in terms of production i i agree i agree with you that i think it will be better and if it's not like that will be a little bit of an upset the one question that i do have is and this is something that we we can't get through this podcast without having like at least a five or ten minute conversation about fields and the one thing that i've been trying to ponder um this offseason is what percentage of Justin Fields greatness did we did we see did Ohio State mm. achieve last year it's like was he 80% of finished product or was he a 40% finished product and like when you look at the way that he played last year and the few interceptions that he threw and the arm strength we didn't see him run that much and i anticipate we probably won't see him run that much this year either at least not until um they need him at the end of the year, but like how much better, like can we like quantify this guy is able to be like, I don't know. Do I go back and watch the last season of Auburn uh, with Cam Newton when they won the national title and like, just try to think like, is that possible? Like, where do you even start with that? That's a really good question. Um, I think I I would say maybe they got like 70-ish percent, 60 between 60 and 70 percent of like full capacity Justin Fields last year. And it's not it's not because he played poorly because he didn't. He was awesome. Um, there, I think, and we've talked about this before, I think there were like, there are intricacies at the quarterback position that I think they're just now starting to dig into because they now have him comfortable in the system and, and he can feel comfortable and at home. Like he's found a spot. Um, he had a uh, change in his position coach but the the verbiage i don't think changes at all the offense is still ryan days and it's all very much the same for him and familiar for him and that's when you start going into stuff like protections and and reading coverages and making full field progressions and um expanding the playbook a little bit and and maybe even because you feel better about the depth behind him letting him use his legs a little more i I did the math in in the story that i wrote the state of the program story and he ran Taking sacks out of the equation, he only carried the ball 106 times, which is not very much over the course of a 14-game season for a quarterback who's as athletic as Justin Fields. And he averaged 6.5 yards per carry taking sacks out of the equation. Again, like, there's more there. You can obviously get more out of that if you sort of unleash this guy on the world because I do think they played it a little conservatively last year, and, and rightfully so at times because they just had nothing behind him. Now, what they have behind him is – two freshmen who've never played a snap of college football, but at the very least they're more talented, even if they're not more experienced. So I think that gives Ryan day a little more leeway to try some other things with Justin Fields that maybe he was hesitant to try last year. And then you're just talking about molding a more fully formed quarterback out of a guy who has some of the best physical traits. I think we've seen at the position, like in the last 15, 20 years. So like, I, there is a lot there left, I think for him, for him to get to. And, and, I don't know the impact of not having spring ball, how, how that might hurt him in, in trying to get there, but I expect him to come out on the field in the fall and potentially even be significantly better than he was last year. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that. I, I think that Ohio State just needs to do one thing. 
they got to figure out a way to make sure that that guy is healthy when they get to the playoff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I because, like, I think that even though we saw some great things from Justin Fields in the Clemson game, he was a little bit more banged up than people thought, more than we thought. And um, I can't imagine what Ohio State might have been able to accomplish last year had he been fully healthy in that game. I don't know if they would have been able to beat LSU, but I think they absolutely would have beaten Clemson. Um, and I think that the spring ball thing that you just said is really interesting because when you look at Ohio State's offense and the offense that you and I both expect will be even better than the team last year, um, even the, despite the fact they lost some really important players, spring football is an important time. <laughs> and their entire receiver room, for the most part, is uh, young kids who haven't really played much. And their running back is a transfer from another program. And all there's a lot of pieces that need to come together on the offense uh, side of the ball just to make sure that uh, things go well. And they missed out on that four-week period or three-week period or Actually, it's six weeks, right? Because they take a break. I don't know, whatever. It's six weeks, yeah. Six-week period of, of practice and film breakdown and understanding and learning the playbook and all the things that happened in spring and the installation of plays. and That might be a big factor, and I think that'll be an interesting story to try to pursue, or maybe it'll be the most obvious story that everybody will pursue. But it's just something that I, I question, too. It's just like, how good will Garrett Wilson be? How good will Jamison Williams be? Um, guys that have been in the program for one year but really could have used spring to, to take those first-team reps and to like get comfortable in the positions that they're going to be in before they take the field in the fall. And maybe if they have a, an extended training camp, that some of that will be alle- alleviated in terms of the pressure of having to be ready faster. Um, but I think the loss of spring ball could have a, a lasting impact. It's going to have a lasting impact on everybody, but specifically on Ohio State's offense. Um, because a lot of these new positions needed time to to kind of mesh. Yeah, the 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 not having spring ball piece is something that is not really in the story that I wrote, and it's not really in any of the stories we read in state of the program because it's not unique. It's it's every, it's impacting everybody, like you said. But that doesn't mean it's not a fair thing to talk about when we're talking about Ohio State and the idea of how they take what they did last year and push it forward into the 2020 season. And people get really excited about these freshman receivers, like you said, and it's just like they have not for all intents and purposes, like played college football yet. And not that spring is a perfect um, simulation of what they're going to see in the fall, but it certainly helps. We see it all the time when guys show up early, it puts them in a better position to, to contribute as true freshmen in the fall. Like none of those guys had that. Um, they kind of have to play anyway because they're a little thinner in terms of experience receivers when you once you get past Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. But I think that should frame how you view what these guys look like when they get on the field. Maybe they'll be awesome. I have like they are really highly rated recruits. They could step on the field and be great. But if they step on the field and you're like, whoa, they're not quite where I thought they'd be, it's like, well, yeah. That's true with every football player in the country because they had a very important chunk of their preparation wiped off the board and were trying to figure out on their own and Matt Jones is in Brooklyn, New York, curling milk cartons full of dirt to try to stay in shape. Like <laughs> this is this is the world we That's live dedication. in. You know? Yeah. So, um, but I do think there is something too, and you tell me if I'm nuts, but I think there is something to the idea that coaches are going to be forced to play kids that they might not have played otherwise, who might not be ready, and then like the earlier games of the season will be more entertaining and more. Um, fruitful in terms of our information gathering um i'm excited i think that the idea of having to play these kids and let them learn on the fly is going to be an instrumental part of um, this season and i think it's more important maybe at the end of the day than it would be to go through spring football so like i like the idea that these kids aren't prepared they don't have another choice go play like just the idea of so many times in the past over the last 10 years where you wanted to see these five-star freshmen come into the game and show what they can do and you know, a lot of times they didn't get to play. This year we're actually going to get to see them play, and I think that's exciting. What do you think as we talk about – maybe let's look into this, some individual positions here. Um, we'll start with receiver, and we've been asked a lot about it in the past. Like, breakdown of – not to put it that way. Chris Olave is obviously starting. Garrett Wilson will be starting in the slot. And there are four – say they have a six-man rotation. There are four other positions there behind Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. How many of the four incoming freshmen do you think hold down those four remaining rotation spots, or do you think uh, Jamison Williams or uh, Jalen Harris or Demario McCall finds his way into there? I think it'll be Jamison Williams and three. Yeah, that's right. I think Julian, uh, Jamison Williams, 
uh, Julian Fleming, uh, Jackson Smith, the Jigba, and G. Scott are the are the four that I would that I would guess. Um, nothing against Mookie Cooper, but he didn't play his senior year of high school, and he's a little bit of a smaller guy. So I mean, he's thick. Maybe I'm I'm underselling him a little bit, but you know, considering the fact that they lost Jalen Gill too, maybe he'll have a bigger role than I think. But I, I think in terms of just the rotational guys, based on rankings, based on ability. Um, natural ability that was probably put on display more last year because they actually got to play their seasons um and just the the types of receivers that they are that they are going to be in the rotation first i think once garrett wilson gets into that slot position it's going to be really hard to to knock him out of it when that impacts mookie cooper and he strikes me as a guy like maybe they they get him into the mix with some jet sweep stuff and ryan day talked a little bit about that maybe you put him a punt returner um, instead of Garrett Wilson or, or kick returner and get the ball in his hands a little bit because I do think he's dynamic, but I just don't I don't see the opening for a guy like him. So I would agree with you. Um, Olave, Wilson, the juice man, and then th- the three freshmen you mentioned would, would be my picks for, for the six-man rotation. How do you think running back is going to look with Trey Sermon coming from Oklahoma, presumably healthy off of his knee injury, Marcus Crowley, presumably healthy off of his, his knee injury, and Master Teague coming off the Achilles where it sounds like there is optimism that he will play this year in some capacity. I think Sermon will get 70% of the reps. Um, Master Teague and Crowley will split the remaining 30. 70 is a lot. I might go like 60 and then split the remaining 40. Well, 70 is the net situation because they're most pure uh, – candidate to be the starting running back this year hurt himself seriously in, sp- in in the spring so yeah um you know 70 60 i i mean i guess i you could talk me down to 60 but um you know late game i'm just thinking it from a perspective of like meaningful reps not total reps um that's a good point yeah. jk dobbins didn't play in a second half um the entire season last year maybe trey sermon won't either so i think 70 percent of the meaningful snaps um, most of which will happen in first half of blowout games this year, I think is a good place to start. Then they definitely should get, you know, Crowley and, and Teague and Chambers some carries and some um, opportunity in the second half of games when they're up by 100. How do you feel about the overall impact of that running back position? How how good it can be won, I guess maybe compared to where it was last year, and then ultimately how important that is to Ohio State's success when we talk about whether or not they can win a national title. I think it'll be worse than last year's because J.K. Dobbins is really good, um, and we're not one of these. <laughs> we're not. This isn't the Ohio State podcast where everything's better <laughs> the next year. Um, and I, I just think that J.K. Dobbins, despite the fact that. Um, I did have some gripes about his speed with you on this podcast and through text message. Um, was a really, really, really good running back, an elite running back, and I think he's going to have a great NFL career. And without him last year, Ohio State's offense isn't nearly as good. And I just – it's the same thing that happened last year with me and, and Justin Fields, so maybe I'll turn out to be wrong. And I'll be fine being wrong again if that's what happens. But the idea that somebody um, elite comes through the transfer portal – is always such a hard thing for me to grasp. Like, how did Georgia let Justin Fields go? It was, like, always my big thing. It's like, if Trey Sermon was the savior of Ohio State's running back room, like, how did he lose his footing in Oklahoma? And I know that he was injured, and I know that it was kind of a complicated situation, but, like, if he is what people are making him out to be right now, then why is he on Ohio State's roster? And, like, I think he's going to have 1,500 yards rushing. I think he's going to have a great year. Um, Ohio State's offense, like, I think, will be in good hands with him. I think he'll be fine, but I don't think he'll be nearly as good as J.K. was. I think he's a little different. Um, and they like the the offense really in the end became it was more of a vehicle I thought for J.K. Dobbins than it was for Justin Fields. Justin Fields had an awesome season, and he ended up being the Heisman candidate on the on the offense because his of of his forty one to three touchdown to interception ratio, which is just absolutely ridiculous, but. Throughout the entire year, it felt like the offense was much more of a vehicle for for the running back than it was for the quarterback, and I think that's going to change. <clears throat> I think a lot of people think that's going to change uh, next year with Justin Fields, but that's not to say that they won't be good at running back. I think they'll be good enough, and we've like I don't want to belabor this point. Um, I don't know. Like running back to me is not like the end all be all when you talk about whether or not you're going to win a national championship. I think it's important. 
obviously, for a lot of reasons, running the ball protection, getting involved in the pass game, all those things. Um, I, I don't think you can have like no level of, of uh, was it dyna, dynamism, dynamism? I don't know how you say that word, um, at the position, but I think you can also be okay without having a J.K. Dobbins at running back every year, particularly when you have a quarterback that's as good as Justin Fields. So I think it'll be like more of a committee deal. I do think Trey Sermon's good. He's never been a workhorse. Um, I don't think he's going to be asked to be one at Ohio State. But I, while I disagreed with your point about Fields last year and the idea, like, well, he left, so like, what? How am I supposed to view him if he if he left this program? Um, I am more on board with that with Trey Sermon when we're talking about the idea if he's just going to step in and be just as good as J.K. Dobbins. Like, he has never really been the bell cow anywhere, and J.K. Dobbins very much was for a very good team. And maybe that's just a matter of circumstance and not a reflection on Trey Sermon's talent. Um, but I think it's a fair question. And if, if you're sitting here assuming that, like, they're going to be fine and it's going to be just as good as last year, I would caution you to not think that, even if I think they still will be a pretty good rushing team with the combination of talent they have at the position and the fact that their offensive line is going to be awesome. Do you just want to, like, go into the offensive line now and just, like, wake me up when you're done? No, like how do you want to do that? We don't have to. I, I think people know where I stand on the offensive line, right? Like it's going to be the best offensive line in the country. Um, so we don't have. I don't need to go on a on a monologue about how good the offensive line is. I will ask you. Like we know Thayer Munford is starting left tackle. Josh Myers is starting center. Wyatt Davis is a starting right guard. I think we all believe that Harry Miller will be the starting left guard. How do we feel about right tackle? Nick Petit, Frere, Parrish, Johnson, Dewan Jones. It seems to me like it's the only like super glaring question mark on the offense um, because even though if you don't know who the starter is going to be at tailback, I think we'll feel pretty confident that they'll, they have enough pieces there to figure it out. Like right tackle to me jumps out sort of above everything else on the offense, and it's one offensive line position, but it's an important offensive line position. How do you think that's going to shake out and, and how you think like how does that being up for grabs like impact your view of the offense, if at all? Well, I think that the projection that we had was that Nicholas Petit was going to win it, right? And I think that's who the staff probably wants to win it because it's the former number one offensive tackle in the 2018 recruiting class who's now going into you know, a pretty experienced position here. And if he didn't win it, then that means that something went wrong. And I think that Paris Johnson and um, Petit's competition this year was supposed to be like one of the best things to watch in the spring and now spring didn't happen so i think that that might have iced petite's chance of winning the job so i don't know again we're still kind of waiting to see how fall camp is going to be and whether it's going to be six weeks or whatever i don't know they're going to try to make up for spring in some way while also being fair to the uh, schedules and the workload for the student athletes but i do think that um winning a starting offensive job or line job as a true freshman is a really hard thing to do. I think Paris Johnson is a transcendent enough talent on the offensive line to actually do it and be good at it. Um, and maybe he still will. Uh, but I do think that the loss of spring kind of has the biggest impact on that position more than any other t- position on the team. I think so too. Uh, I, I do. It'll be Nick Petit's as my guess. And normally I would say like, I would say that a freshman starting on the offensive line is a pretty serious red flag. I wouldn't necessarily feel that if Parrish Johnson does end up being a starter. But I do think Nick Petit Frere will, will be the guy. And the thing about Nick Petit that I think is important for people to remember when they wonder how a guy who was the number one offensive tackle in the class and a top 10 national prospect and a five-star guy, how it could take him three years to earn a starting job, he had to gain like 35, 40 pounds to be big enough to play tackle in the Big Ten. He's very athletic. I think he has a lot of natural gifts, but you also have to have the size. You can't just throw a 260-pound guy out there at tackle and, and hope for the best. So he had to get bigger, and then once you get bigger, you have to learn how to play at that size. Um, so there are a lot of things that had to come together for Nick Petit, like physically, to be ready to play the position. So in my mind, he's sort of right on track when you take that into account. Um but if he goes into whatever this camp might look like 
that I, I guess might start in July sometime if we're going to have a season that start in September. Um, if he goes into that and he gets beat out again, then like we can have a different conversation. But for the time being, like I don't, I'm not concerned at all that like Nick Petit hasn't won a job yet. This feels like a kind of a natural progression to me when you look at the physical changes he had to make. Absolutely, yeah. No, I agree 100 percent with everything you just said. Uh, before we move on, we'll, we'll talk about the future of the program a little bit, but we kind of went in depth on the offense. We basically went position by position. We won't do that with the defense, but I'll ask you, like, what what do you feel, like, on an individual standpoint, what do you feel best about from on the defense, and what do you have the biggest questions about on the defense, like, when you look at the positions? I think the best thing that you should feel about, uh, I feel good about is um, Sean Wade. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Like. Yeah. I do think that Ohio State's uh, having him back this year has has kind of changed my entire perspective of the entire defense. And I don't know if that's overstating it, and you can tell me if I'm overboard on it, but like when I was in Jacksonville um, reporting on his decision and the targeting stuff, and their family was gracious enough to let me come into their home, and they were explaining it to me, I was thinking to myself, this is a monumental, monumental thing for Ohio State to get him back. And to be able to put him in a position to um, – exceed and excel um exceed expectations and excel in a position that he feels like he can excel in now that okuda's gone i think is a huge thing to feel good about and i think he's going to be very good at it um really when you look at everything else though i i think that it's the biggest everything on the defense is a question and like it's like what do you feel the best about like i could say defensive line because they've got depth and they've got talent but it's just like teron vincent has not done anything yet he has a lot to prove can zach harrison do it um what can jonathan cooper do as a senior uh, I think we, we, we don't know whether or not Tyreek Smith has, has hit his ceiling because he's been injured his entire career. I mean, that's a defensive line. Um, I guess you know what you're going to get at linebacker because they've all returned for the most part. Mm. But then, you know, you go into the secondary and it's it's more questions again. How good is Cameron Brown going to be? How good is Seven Banks going to be? What's the rotation going to look like? Can Josh Proctor turn into the uh, comparison of Malik Hooker that everybody's been making, or is he a liability like he was at times as a young player in the, in the Fiesta Bowl? Like, when you ask the question, what do you feel best about, the only real thing I can say with, with great confidence is Sean Wade, because I know what Sean Wade is and who and what he can be. Um, and that, to me, is the reason why we started the podcast the way we did about the defense and how good we can be. I, I look at all these names here, Bill, and I guess the thing to, to make a blanket statement about the defense is, is what do you feel best about it? I feel best about their talent. Yeah. I feel best about the individual pieces um, and the, the fact that they have a variety of options at every position to fill it out. So like, if you look at the defensive line, if Teron Vincent doesn't work out, then, you know, there's three other four star prospects behind him um, that might be really good at it. Um, and I think that's the case everywhere. So the options and the talent, um, are always a strength for Ohio State, but in terms of like what I feel warm inside about, I don't really know that there's that much. I think that there's a lot to to get good at if they're going to have a national championship caliber team. I feel pretty good about the linebackers. I know people are uh, I'm <laughs> super excited. I'm sure to watch Tough Borland play again and uh, Pete Warner play again, and you know Baron Browning is back again. Like all these. They have, I think it's seven or eight guys who are all seniors or juniors. Um, all the starters, except for Malik Harrison, are back. I have no idea how they're going to find roles for all these guys. I wonder if they're going to start doing like some sub packages and, and specific personnel groupings to try to make sure that guys like Dallas Gant, Kavon Pope, who didn't play a ton last year, do get on the field because I think they're ready. And if they're not on the field and you're talking about going into your senior year, basically having done nothing but contribute on special teams, um, which is not a great position uh, to be in. But I overall, I feel I think that position is the, it's the most experienced. And I think it's arguably the deepest when you look at all the starting experience they have coming back and guys like Taraja Mitchell, Dallas Gant, Kavon Pope, who haven't really played. Um, so I feel best like about that, or I feel most certain that like I know what you're going to get out of that position group. And then obviously I feel pretty good about Sean Wade. The thing with Sean Wade, and I don't know, I I get wanting to move outside, and it's kind of a funny thing. He came back because he said he wanted to get film outside, and I guess he wasn't sure that he would have been a first round pick. And he also wanted to graduate, which I think gets lost in that conversation. But I feel pretty good about the fact that he would have been a first round pick had he gone out last year and i wonder 
how he feels about that and like whether or not that might impact the we're playing Sean outside exclusively this year conversation because he was so good at nickel. Like he was a very important piece of the defense last year. And the idea that you have a fundamental piece of your defense returning and you're going to take him out of that and put him somewhere else um, seems a little strange to me. And it's not because I don't think Sean Wade will be good outside. It's because I know how good he was playing inside um, and how much that meant for the defense. And, and the defense might take on some different looks with Kerry Combs and, and maybe diversifying some coverages and playing more split safeties and like all that stuff's on the table. And that, that starts you getting uh, pieces moving around and stuff like that. But I am on alert, I guess, for, four or five games into the year, them saying like, you know what? We're better with Sean playing the nickel and he's going back to playing the nickel. And it's not because I think he'll be bad on the outside. Um, but I think that it's because they couldn't find an answer to replace him on the inside among the guys they had at their disposal. So um, while I feel good about Sean Wade, the individual, I, I feel less good about like that idea of moving him outside and then, all the other things I agree with you with, like where's the pass rush coming from? Who's going to step up? Like healthy Teron Vincent, what does that look like? Because we're talking about the guy who was number one defensive tackle in the country coming out of high school who hasn't really played all that much yet because of injuries. Um, they're very thin at safety behind Josh Proctor. It's like Josh Proctor, Marcus Hooker, and then a bunch of freshmen. What What's going to happen there, especially if we're living in a world where two safeties are on the field more than they were last year? That's a pretty big question mark for me. Um Nothing, again, that like we said at the beginning that makes me feel bad about their chances of, of getting back to the playoff and ultimately winning it. But there are a lot of questions on that side of the ball, like more than I remember Ohio State sort of like collectively having in a while, maybe since like 2016 when um, that offense went through a pretty big makeover. When it all comes together, and I think that what we're going to move on to now, Bill, is my favorite part is the future, right? But – The thing that Ohio State always has, and the reason why Ohio State will always be a pick to be in the playoff is because of options. And that's the best thing in life, right? You know, you work hard to have options. And I think Ohio State has options. And I think that that's like kind of like might be the whole basic theme of the defense this year. All right, let's talk about the future and we'll wrap this thing up here because state of the program is not just 2020. It's state of the program now and moving forward like – Ohio State, I think you and I both feel like is in this position now where they are in sort of a win-now mode with the personnel they have on their roster. And I think the only program that's really existed in that mode for an extended number of years has been Alabama. And I think they're still there, even if they didn't get to the playoff for the first time last year. And I think Clemson is is kind of there now where like you wake up in the morning on the first day of the football season. And it's like, here we go. It's a March to the national championship. And if they don't get there, like this season wasn't what I thought it would be. And I don't know if Ohio state was always there in the past, but to me with the way they're recruiting and like the confidence I have in Ryan day as a head coach, I feel like they're turning a corner a little bit. And I guess like they're not going to actually be there until they can show that they can do it. But I feel like this is this coming season to me feels like the first step in getting to that kind of, uh, standing in college football. And I don't know if you agree with that or if you think they were already there or you think I'm crazy for thinking that. But in terms of long-term projections for the program, like I think I think there is another level even from where they were under Urban Meyer where Ohio State is like sort of on the precipice of and this season like determines whether or not they're actually going to take that step up. Yeah, I mean, you lived it. You covered it. We covered it. We saw what that, was, what that felt like um, and being in the verge of that. When Ohio State won the national championship in 2014, and they were returning their entire team, and they were getting commitments from five-star prospects at halftime of the national championship game, like the whole thing was this is turning into to Alabama, you know, and the whole thing was chasing Alabama, being Alabama, breaking Alabama, you know, and for whatever reason, um, multiple reasons, but Clemson took their spot, and that was the whole thing last year. Um, at the Fiesta Bowl, and you know, I wrote a story. It was our podcast. It was our discussions. Everything about it was 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 beating Clemson and reasserting themselves as a program that is in that in that conversation. And I always thought that Ohio State was in that conversation because I don't know who, if it's Alabama, Clemson, then number three. I don't know if there's any program that's more equipped to claim number three than Ohio State. You know, six years ago, winning a national championship seems like an eternity at Ohio State. For everybody else, it's just like pretty recent. So 
you know, I think that it's unbelievable to me that they went two two years in a row or three years in a row. What I can't remember what it was now without making it to the playoff with the rosters that they had. Um, but yeah, I do think that if they are going to be in that category as March to the playoff, head to head with Alabama, Clemson, I think Ohio State needs to, at the very baseline, get to the playoff. You know, I, I think that the whole idea of going two or three years without making it has to has to be over. Um, and you know, it's kind of an interesting scenario because they did say goodbye to Urban Meyer, and now all of a sudden, not only is Ohio State recruiting at a certain level that we haven't seen. Uh, there's a X's and O's confidence from the fan base that, that I don't know was there in the last three or four years of Urban Meyer. So as long as Ohio State continues to have talented stacked rosters the way that they do, and judging by the fact that they signed 17 four- and five-star prospects um, in the 2020 recruiting class and now have 12 commitments from players in the top 105 nationally, they're going to have a stacked roster. That doesn't mean anything for this year. Um 2020 class means something for this year, but the 2021 class doesn't. I do think, though, that the combination of coaching and talent will have Ohio State in that category. I think they belong in the discussion with Alabama and Clemson, but I think that there is some gap between one and two and three, and I think they're just trying to close that gap between those two, three, which was the same thing last year. They just didn't get it done. They could have gotten it done, and they showed on the field that they belonged in that discussion, but there's a difference between playing hard and being good and having a chance to win and winning, and they didn't do it. Ohio State's 2013 and 2014 recruiting. 13 was awesome. We all know 13 was awesome. And I did this story a couple weeks ago, like going back and, and sort of regrading Urban Meyer's recruiting classes. And 2014 also ended up looking pretty good, especially compared to 2013. It was basically the, the second best class that had played any significant time of Urban Meyer's tenure. And it was pretty close in a lot of different metrics to 2013, other than the fact that it, it didn't win you know another national title once that that group kind of matriculated through the roster um but then the 15 and 16 classes were not great and i bring that up because i want to ask you this um i made the point earlier that that a lot of the 2017 class or, or there are still significant pieces left from that great 2017 class on this roster and, and the entire 2018 class for the most part is still on this roster after this year 2017 has gone there could be quite a few guys from 18 depending on how this season plays out and how those guys develop who could be gone to the NFL draft, whether they're like two years and done or, or sort of three years and done like a Chris Olave or a one year basically and done like a Teron Vincent if he, if he plays that well. The idea that they could lose a significant chunk of the 18 class after this year too, how does that make you feel about sustaining momentum with basically like the 19 class and the 20 class as freshmen forming the heart of your roster, kind of how it was in the 2014 season when that 2013 class ended up being so important to Ohio State success. Well, the 2020 class would be going into their second year, right? Yeah. No. So well, I feel yeah, pretty good about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It would be the 19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 19 classes as 19 class was ranked, and I 19 class was ranked 14th. And I remember texting you a few days ago, like, "Wow, they were 14th," but the size of that class was the reason they were 14th. The quality of the class was not. Was it the third highest average player rating? And, it like, was, to me, that's the real yeah. ranking. Go look at the average player rating. And, you know, then when you look at the um, 2020 class, you got two top 10 players um, and one, two, three, four, five, six top 100 players um, founding the uh, top end part of the talent. I mean, they've got a lot of really good players. Um and I think that they are at the way that they're recruiting right now. 2019 is the the freshman base, and you have the second year 2020 class, and then once 2021 gets in, like you might have an even more talented roster than the rosters that Ohio State had when they were really good in 2017. So how do I feel about it? I think it's great. Um, you know, you don't want to lose the 17 and 18 classes because they were so good, but the way that they're they're going right now, they're replacing them with even more elite classes. I mean. Bill, they're about to sign the best class in the history of modern day recruiting. Yeah, like that, like is nuts, and they're doing it without Urban. So, to me, I think that based on what I just said about the defense options, I think Ohio State's always going to have those. And every year when a class departs, uh, they're bringing in another class that was ranked similarly or better. I think that's how you maintain and reload. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that that's life <laughs> in college football, or as Urban would say, in the big city. Um, and 
Ohio State's put in a position where they're bringing in these classes to replace them. And that's the reason why we can say, well, we don't know what's going to happen right now with these seven position groups, but guess what? Look at all these names. It's going to turn out great. It's because of that. And I, and I believe that moving forward. The, the piece of that, I, I agree with you for the most part. The reason I asked it is because um, I think you know, you've been pretty strongly out there saying that, that you feel like Ohio State has not maximized it, the, what it could be the last couple of years, really like from basically 15, 16, 17, and 18 um, before Urban left. And I, I would agree with that, and I think most people would agree with that. And I think part of that equation is the idea that they had back-to-back recruiting classes in 2015 and 2016 that compared to sort of their standard did not really hold up, 15 in particular. They lost a lot of guys from those classes. Um, the guys who were like pretty big difference makers, a lot of them were guys who took five years to become that. And when you're taking five years to become that, there's like a gap in the middle. And I think that's what you see. Like 2016 defense is really good. The 2016 offense is not very good. Um, the 2018 offense is very good. The 2018 defense is not very good because it, like you're not having guys hit early enough to sort of like sustain momentum in, in, in the kind of way that we're talking about. They're still good teams, but they're not competing for national championships. And the reason I ask you that question is because I, like, I wonder in a world where 17 cycles out, you could lose a chunk of 18 and then like the base is 19 and 20 and they're young. Like, do you have confidence that those guys are going to hit in a way that sustains the kind of momentum we're, momentum we're talking about and not, you know, they're not going to go 13 and one last year. Let's say they go, you know, 14 to one this year and win a national championship. And then like next year they go 10 and two in the regular season. I don't think they'll go 10 and two uh, as long as they continue to do this. Um, there is a certain, baseline of how long it takes for guys to develop but the thing that i always say about recruiting rankings and the reason why i'm so obsessed with them is is the more recruits that you have in there in the top 100 the more likely they are to hit early yeah so like if they sign 15 top 100 players which is 15 percent of the top 100 players in america this year and only six of them pan out right away that's six true freshmen who panned out and that's more than that's that's three or four times more than most programs will sign in a given year. So the the, the sheer numbers of exceedingly good players that they are bringing in is making it easier to have a hit rate that makes you able to sustain the success. And that's the reason why we're so obsessed with this this stuff, man. Like, I, it's just sheer mathematics. The the more good players you have, the more likely they are to be good faster. And you know, I I do think that it's really hard. Um, for a fan and even maybe for a reporter that spends a lot of time thinking about this team to kind of put in perspective that they're going to lose players that are really, really good, and then you're going to have an expectation the following year that the players that step in are also really, really good, but they do it every year. Every year people leave, and and every year people step up. And it was just like J.K. Dobbins was a four-star prospect from LaGrange, Texas, and then the first game of his freshman year, the guy rushes for 200 yards against Indiana. It's like, well, there's a running back. You know, they just come out of nowhere. And the reason why they come out of nowhere is because they were in the top 100 of the recruiting rankings or wherever they are at any given time. Yeah. No, I agree with all stars that. Stars matter, and man. Stars do <laughs> matter. Stars do matter, for sure. Um, the thing that makes me feel a little bit different about it, and like this can be the last point, I guess, when we'll, when we'll get out of here. Um, how they were, how they're recruiting a quarterback, and I'm sure when I was saying what I was saying about them taking dips, there were people listening who were screaming about the quarterback play not being good enough. And like, I heard you, I got, I got you. Um, JT Barrett was here forever, and while I think he was a very good quarterback and capable, at least in 2014, I think of leading them to a championship in that particular year with that particular team. Um, wasn't quite good enough to lift the team to to that level the rest of his career. Even if I think he was pretty good, um, they will be better in theory at that most important position moving forward because of what Ryan Day has done to to elevate the recruiting of that position in particular with one landing Justin Fields because the best quarterback in the country happened to enter the transfer portal as soon as Ryan Day started but then lining up CJ Stroud and Jack Miller and Kyle McCord and whatever comes down the line after that like if you are year after year or every other year adding an NFL caliber quarterback to your roster that gives you a little bit of leeway, I think. That doesn't mean you can take a major dip everywhere else, but if there are ebbs and flows in your recruiting, which I think happens naturally depending on what situation your roster is in, as long as there's an NFL-caliber quarterback on your roster all the time, you're going to have a pretty good shot, and I think Ohio State is in that position for as long as Ryan Day's here. 
And what I'll say is that is options. He's got options. Options. Did you just take some water? Did I, I went shorter I than you thought and you were drinking some water? I took a swig. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He called yeah, me. Sorry to put yeah. you. I thought, <laughs> sorry I was, about that, but I didn't know if I was going to tee you up for another JT Barrett rant or what, but I'm glad we didn't because we <laughs> No, no, no. I, I think we're. Uh, <laughs> I know that there's a uh, weakness that I have, uh, both socially and um, professionally, and that's redundancy, and I'm trying to work on it. Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe <laughs> we, can all, we can all work on that. Um, okay, the, so that's the state of the program. Uh, again, the story goes into pretty uh, in-depth detail on uh, position breakdowns. Uh, the 2020 schedule, at least as it stands right now, uh, some coaching changes that we didn't talk a ton about on this episode, but you can read about in the story. Uh, it's available on the athletic, the athletic.com slash four dash six. We'll get you subscribed and you can read that story. Uh, we appreciate you guys supporting us. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get those. That helps us out a ton too. Appreciate you guys uh, sticking with us through this weird time where there's like been no sports. And it looks like maybe there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel here. So uh, we'll keep you up to date on that. We'll keep writing about Ohio state. We'll keep doing the podcast and uh, hopefully we're inching closer here toward a 2020 season in some form or fashion. Ari, anything else you want to let the people know before we sign off? You're just the best host, Bill. I just want everybody to hear your voice last. Just say something. Thanks for listening.